If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament and the 11th chapter. If you are a note taker, I'd like to warn you at the outset that this is more of a meditation than a uh, point-by-point study through Matthew 11, 2 through 6, but hopefully there'll be at least a few things helpful to write down. Uh, The theme of last Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, was hope, and today, the second Sunday, the theme is faith, hope and faith. Now, we know these are two distinct ideas within Christianity, if only because of verses like 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. But what exactly, have you ever thought about this, is the difference between hope and faith? They can often be used interchangeably, I think, within our our culture, but what difference is there between them in how the scriptures use them? In an article seeking to answer these kinds of questions, John Piper writes that hope is, quote, always future-oriented and consists in a firm confidence of what we are hoping for. It's future-oriented and consists in a firm confidence of what we are hoping for. So as we looked at the idea of hope briefly in our Advent poem last week, the focus was on the prophets, like Jeremiah, and the hope of a Messiah that they pointed to in the future. They had a firm confidence that something yet to have occurred would most certainly happen. Faith, on the other hand, is a a bigger concept, and it seems to actually include hope. So maybe it's not on the other hand. Maybe faith is the hand that holds hope in its grip. They are different, of course, but faith would seem to be more rooted in the reality of the present than the promise of the future. Faith, says the author of Hebrews, is the substance of things hoped for. It's, it's the soil that hope springs from. To have faith is to trust the reality of something that we cannot see. And hope seems to be focused on the joy and the elation and the anticipation that comes out of that faith and trust. Well, we've jumped right into the deep end, haven't we? Not much of an introduction there. We just went right into it. And maybe all of this is is bleeding together for you a little bit, which is fine. It's probably even okay to use these words almost interchangeably at times. The scriptures seem to do so. Uh, But Piper, Piper offers one more way to distinguish these two ideas, and he says this, the main distinction between Christian faith and Christian hope is that faith is in a substantial way a trusting relationship with a person. Faith is a trusting relationship with a person. Faith then for the Christian is ultimately centered on God and on his son, Jesus. It says to Jesus, I trust you. I have faith that you are who you say you are and you will do what you say you will do. Faith is focused on a person. And for the Christian, it's focused on Jesus. The second Sunday of Advent not only focuses on faith, but it also traditionally highlights the ministry of John the Baptist. And in a curious way, John helps us to see the differences and the similarities between hope and faith. 
Think about this. John is found, of course, in the pages of the New Testament, but he's also the last of the Old Testament prophets, we might say. Like Isaiah or Jeremiah, he, he holds out to the people of Israel the hope of the Messiah King. But in a unique way, he also calls them to faith in a specific person. John does something that Isaiah could never do. He physically points at a person and says, have faith in him. He's the Messiah. It's natural, I think, to think about John at this time of year because the story of the birth of Jesus is intertwined with the birth of his relative John, who we know as John the Baptist. Uh, Even before the angel visited Mary, he visited Zechariah, who would be the father of John the Baptist. The angel told Zechariah that he and his wife would have a son in their old age who would be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah to go before the Savior and Redeemer and King that the Jewish people had been waiting for. And it was John's mother, Elizabeth, who became a confidant for Mary in the midst of her confusion and struggle surrounding this miraculous birth that she was a part of. And so it doesn't seem to be a stretch at all, though we'll stretch our imaginations a little bit, but to imagine John and Jesus growing up together, at least in some ways, separated in age by only a few months, Maybe they played together as their families gathered for holidays and for feasts in the same way that many of us have cousins that we're growing up with or that we grew up with. Of course, John eventually became a a bit of a recluse living in the desert, wearing camel skins, eating bugs. I imagine he was the the subject of a good number of, of conversations in the kitchen at family gatherings. Though maybe Jesus was someone that John could talk to. Uh, someone he could confide in about how he understood his role in God's plan. And that role, you remember, was to call the people to repentance so that they might be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. While the rest of the family maybe raised their eyebrows at John, Jesus could have encouraged him. Jesus understood the role that John played in the plan of redemption because he also understood his own role. And yet it would seem that John didn't understand the truth about Jesus until the day that Jesus came to the banks of the Jordan River. Uh, This is how it's described in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And you can sense John's sort of almost surprise that Jesus is the one he's been waiting for. The next day he saw Jesus, this is John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John had hoped and looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, and in that moment, his hope became faith. It became trust in Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sin of the world, the descendant of David who would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. John believed and he called others to believe in Jesus as well. It's John's bold proclamation on the banks of the Jordan that that makes the scene in Matthew 11 all the more surprising and curious. In Matthew, he's describing various miracles of Jesus in chapters 8 and 9. 
He describes the sending of the 12 in chapter 10. And then we find in Matthew 11 and following the various ways that people were responding to Jesus. And John represents one of those responses. But it's a startling response because it's a response of uncertainty about Jesus. And as we look at this response today, I think we will find that this uncertain response to Jesus is rooted in his expectations of just what the Messiah would be like and what he would do. And so John's story here in Matthew 11 says to us this Advent, grow in faith by getting rid of false expectations. Not much of an outline, but we will have a big idea, and it's that. Grow in faith by getting rid of false expectations. Christmas, of course, is a season of expectation and expectations. Our family, probably much like yours, has various traditions. And traditions mean that there are expectations that we will do certain things, that we will watch particular movies, that we will listen to specific music. And there are a lot of expectations about food. There are things that you have to eat on Christmas. And if these expectations are not met, there's disappointment. Maybe you have similar feelings. It could be that you have said or you will say in coming days, it's not Christmas if we don't fill in the blank. Well, John had expectations too, uh, not about Christmas, but kind of. Uh, He had expectations about just who the Messiah would be and of what he would do. And while he had had been so bold in faith early on, we find this curious change in Matthew 11, 2 through 6, But, but not a change that we can't relate to because Jesus, let's be honest, sometimes doesn't line up with our expectations either. He doesn't do what we expect him to do. And not just in the pages of scripture, but in our lives. We have expectations about how a good and loving God will act and just what he will bring into our lives. We have expectations about what a just and powerful God will do. And when our expectations bump up against the reality of our lives or of the world around us, our faith can waver a little bit. We can begin to doubt. But what John helps us see is that our doubts may be less about things not being the way that they should be and more about things simply not being the way we expected them to be. Doubt was something that John faced, and it's something that we all face to one degree or another. It could be that you're hesitant to commit your life to Christ because of the doubts you have. Or you might be a follower of Jesus like, who, like most of us, struggles with doubts. You might be like the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who said, some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the gospel we have preached. Or you might be like John the Baptist. And in this Advent season, I think John invites us to grow in faith by getting rid of false expectations. Look with me at Matthew 11, and let's read verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
it would seem to me that doubt is something that John came by honestly. Uh, Luke opens his gospel with the story of John's father, Zechariah. We, we've already mentioned that the, an angel told he and his elderly wife that they were finally going to have the baby that they had prayed for. But we didn't mention that, that Zechariah didn't believe the angel. Zechariah wasn't as bold as, as Sarah had been when she laughed at the news that she and Abraham would have a child, but he did ask the angel how in the world this was going to be possible. And that question didn't seem to be born out of curiosity, but more about the fact that the situation just seemed absurd and impossible. Well, Zechariah learned his lesson, you know, from that story after nine months of being unable to speak. But it could be that, that he passed on his skepticism to his son, maybe as we all do. Each of us comes from a, a long line of doubters. And the scriptures make no effort to hide the fact that some of the heroes of our faith were actually pretty faithless at times. But John's doubts, I don't think, were ultimately hereditary. Uh, David Platt describes the anatomy of doubt in John and in us as being made up of three components, difficult situations, unmet expectations, and limited perceptions. I think that's helpful. Difficult situations, unmet expectations, and limited perceptions. Though I would actually argue that I think they all find a connection in that middle component, unmet expectations. John's doubt were, doubts were certainly in part situational. Where is he? He's in prison. And he's in prison, according to chapter 14, because he confronted the government official Herod about his sin. In other words, John was doing what he was supposed to do as a prophet, and he got thrown in jail for it. Doubts often arise out of difficulty when sickness or heartache or death or disappointment or dis depression find their way into our lives. It's, it's easy, very easy, to, to just lose faith. It's easy to question who God is and, and what he's doing. We could say that this disappointment, that difficulty is in fact an, an unmet expectation itself. You see, we, we often expect that if we do the right thing, things will go right. But if we seem to do everything right and then everything goes wrong, what does that mean? The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is attractive because that's how our minds process blessings and goodness in life. But the scriptures are clear that in this life, there is no guarantee that every moment of your life is going to look like a Hallmark Christmas movie. It, it, if, and if we, if we can't throw off those kinds of expectations, then we're going to slowly spiral to the point of losing our faith completely. Of course, maybe John actually fully expected that he was going to suffer from doing right. It's, it's what all the prophets before him had faced, and while being in prison wasn't necessarily helping him to have faith in what Jesus was doing, his unmet expectations seemed to have more to do with how the Messiah was supposed to be at work in the world, according to John. His question in verse 2 was prompted after hearing about the deeds of Jesus. And while, while he had been confident about Jesus being the Savior of Israel earlier, something about the character of Jesus' ministry seemed to, to shake his faith. It's hard to say. Maybe he shared some concerns with the Pharisees. Maybe he didn't like the way that Jesus appeared to break the Sabbath or the other ceremonial laws. Maybe he was surprised at the, the lack of acceptance in general amongst the Jewish people. 
Or maybe, maybe John, the one who had called people to repent, the one who called the religious elite a brood of vipers, maybe he expected a little less healing and a little more judgment. Back in Matthew 3, 11 through 12, John said this to the crowd. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And yet for all John's predictions about fire, (laughs) he wasn't hearing about Jesus bringing a lot of fire. No, rather, he's in prison. John's in prison while unrighteous people like Herod are still sitting on thrones. So if Jesus was the Messiah, then why was this happening? John was likely expecting the ministry of Jesus to be filled with judgment on God's enemies and glory for those who followed him. Therefore, I actually wonder if John's question was a veiled bit of of prodding from his relative who had known Jesus for decades. Maybe the question, are you the Messiah or are we waiting for another, was John's way of saying, you're the Messiah, what are you waiting for? And this is where we find John's limited perspective. He had expected that the, the blessings of forgiveness and grace to God's people would arrive at the same time as worldwide judgment and the glorification of the Messiah. He assumed, as many people did, that the coming of the Messiah meant the arrival of the kingdom in fullness. But that was not the case. So when Jesus responds to John, he tells him, he tells John what John already knew. (laughs) He tells the disciples of John to go back to John and report all that they had seen and heard, to tell John about the miracles being performed and the good news being proclaimed to the poor, but John, John already knew all of this. In fact, that seemed to be what was prompting the question. And yet Jesus seems to reframe things for John. Craig Bloomberg says this about the list that was sent to John. Jesus wants to remind John of the messianic significance of some of the specific miracles of healing. Such works were in fact, were in fact undermining the evil powers of the universe, even if in surprising ways. So he wants, Jesus wants John to remember Isaiah 29, 18 to 19. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. John is doubting. He's, he's anxious, and Jesus wants him to think of Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And what will it look like when he comes? Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Here's what I think is going on. I think that Jesus wants John to see that he is in fact bringing judgment and condemnation on wickedness. But he's doing it by reversing all of the ways that, that wickedness had broken God's good world. He's judging the darkness by bringing light. He's condemning blindness by bringing sight. He's destroying disease by bringing health. He's conquering death by bringing life. 
like John, the delay of God's clear judgment of evil can, can cause us to, to doubt. We see all the wickedness around us and all the effects of our sinful and selfish choices, and we want God to come and destroy the darkness, the darkness in this world and the darkness that's still in us. But in that expectation of clear condemnation, we might miss the quiet ways that light has come and is coming into the world through Jesus and through his followers. Christians, for the glory of God, have often been at the forefront, shining light into the dark places of this world, pushing back darkness in a, in a way that condemns it. Christians have been at the forefront of working in healthcare to see people restored, of helping the homeless and the widow and the orphan, of, of supporting those faced with an unplanned pregnancy or a sudden job loss or a heartbreaking situation. And in bringing such light, we are in one way judging the darkness. We are proclaiming that these things are not the way that they are supposed to be. It's not the way that God made his good world and that God will one day come and make all of these things right. Here's a holiday photo tip for you. When you take a family picture, you want the kids in the front row. Otherwise, the adults are just going to hide them all from from view. You don't need to kick the adults out and just have a picture with the kids. The, the adults belong there. Just put them in a place where they're not blocking all of the children, okay? That's a really good tip. You probably didn't know that one, did you? <laughs> Here's the thing. The reality of God's coming judgment and the fullness of his kingdom are as certain as his first coming. We don't need to remove the idea of the judgment of Jesus that is coming from the picture. We just need to keep it from blocking the ways that God's kingdom is among us right now. Our longing for these good but future things can keep us from seeing the ways that Jesus, the light of the world, is condemning the darkness through all of the goodness and the love that he has shown us. And if we miss that, if we miss that, we'll become a grumpy church, <laughs> just disgruntled, that the kingdom isn't fully here, all the while missing the ways that God's love and grace and light have broken through. We'll become discouraged in our individual lives, seeing only the ways that things go wrong, instead of all of the ways that, that God's goodness is pushing back the darkness. We'll cross our arms instead of reaching them out to show the world and one another the goodness of God's kingdom. And we will fail to announce the message of the good news that's found in the fact that Jesus has most certainly come. Remember, John's disciples were to tell John what they saw, but also what they heard. And what they heard was a message of forgiveness for sins and welcome into God's fold being proclaimed to who? To the poor. This too was a sign that Jesus was the one John and everyone else was waiting for. Jesus connected the dots for us when he began his ministry by quoting Isaiah 61 and saying that he had come to fulfill those words. Luke 4, 18 to 19, Jesus proclaims this, quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Wait a minute, did you hear what Jesus said? Liberty to the captives. Does John have a point? <laughs> wouldn't, that, wouldn't that include people in prison? Yes, but Jesus was reminding John that the great problem of the human soul is that we are enslaved 
to sin. That we are condemned by our wickedness and our rebellion. And it's freedom from the world and our own flesh and the devil himself that we truly need. Release from prison is not as important as release from sin. So Jesus says to John's disciples, tell John that the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Tell John that people are being set free from sin and death. That those who are poor are receiving forgiveness before the final judgment arrives. Again, Craig Bloomberg is helpful. He says this in his sermons. Jesus has emphasized that he is inverting the world's standards of greatness. So it should surprise no one that his concept of messiahship did not involve political or military aspirations. No, Jesus has not come in his first advent to fully reign as king over the nations. He has come to be accepted by those the world rejects and to be rejected by the world so that he can bring forgiveness of sins to everyone who will repent and believe. He's come to die so that we might live forever. He's come to announce the blessings of Matthew 5, 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, John, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And for John, Jesus adds another beatitude in verse 6 of our passage. Did you see it? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Who is not scandalized by me. Why does Jesus say that? Well, in all of our trying to understand what's behind John's questions, we know that Jesus knew the hearts of everyone. He knew the, those who truly accepted him. He knew those who completely rejected him. And he knew the source of the doubts that filled John's heart. He knows the source of the doubts that fill your heart and my heart. And for those who doubt, his call is to not be scandalized by him. So what would be the opposite of being offended or scandalized by Jesus? What would it mean for John to not be offended by, by Jesus' apparent softness on judgment, for his inaction in releasing him from prison? What will it mean for us to not be scandalized by the way that the world seems to not reflect the goodness of God's kingdom right now? What will it mean for us to not be offended by the cross or by the death of the Messiah? I think it means faith. I think it means trust. It will mean looking at Jesus even when he is confusing and even when his ways don't make sense, even when we're suffering for doing what it's right or suffering for no apparent reason at all. It will mean looking at him and saying, I trust you, 
I don't always understand you. But I trust you. And to trust him in that, may, in that way will often mean that we have to let go of some false expectations. It will mean we have to dig down in our hearts and see what do we want Jesus to be that he's not being for us, but that he never said he would be. One of the things we highlight in the Christmas story is how unexpected it all was the virgin conception, the humble birth, the arrival of the shepherds and the magi. These are all strange and unexpected things. They're, they're not how we would have imagined King Jesus arriving. And the surprises just keep coming all the way until the greatest surprise. It's the moment that Jesus dies on a cross. John never saw that coming. Death and resurrection is never what we expect. But they are what we must have faith in if we're going to be saved from God's coming judgment. We have to trust that his death was for us, that, that his life is offered to us as we repent and believe. And in not being offended by that, not being scandalized by that, but rather trusting his ways, we will grow in faith as the reality of the cross illuminates and then clarifies all of the reasons that we could come up for doubting what Jesus is doing. As we take the Lord's Supper in a moment, I wonder if it could be an opportunity for each of us to let our false expectations about Jesus fade away as we remember the unexpected wonder of his death to bring us salvation. As we take the bread and the cup, it's an opportunity to not be offended by Jesus but to trust him, to say to him, I trust you, Jesus, even when you confuse and frustrate me. And so this time of communion is an invitation to faith, an invitation to trust Jesus once again. And so I want to invite those of you who have trusted in Jesus for salvation and have been baptized as a sign of that faith, I want to invite you to take this meal together with us. If that's not true of you, I would ask that you just let the bread and the cup pass. Let me give us a, a moment of silence to prepare our hearts to take this meal together. And then, Jake, would you be willing to help me pass the bread and the cup? So we will take a moment of silence. I will pray, and then we will pass the bread. Father, by the power of your spirit, through your word, would you fill our hearts with that cry, I trust you, Jesus. I have faith in you even when I don't understand what you're doing. Lord, with this moment now that we get to look at the cross and to remember how scandalous it was and yet for us it is, it's beautiful, it's it's what makes sense of everything else in this world. Lord, fill our hearts with trust in who you are and what you're doing. Would you let all of our false expectations, all the ways that we get so easily frustrated or confused, would you let them fade away and help us to see 
the beauty of the gospel in this moment. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.